No, I, I, I'm not surprised because there's two things. My heart and my mind is in it big time. And as long as those two continue to be in it and my health, thank the good Lord, at the age of 82 is very good. And, uh, you know, I, I love it. And I, uh, I'm not ready to pack it in at all. Actually, I have a lot of fire in my belly. That's Frank Gagliano. And this is episode 64 of the Morning Shakeout Podcast. Hey, everybody. I'm your host, Mario Fraioli, and I've got a very special guest for you this week. I recently sat down with Frank Gagliano, the 82-year-old coach of the Hoka New Jersey New York Track Club, for a conversation about coaching in life that had a profound impact on me, and I know it will do the same for you. This one got emotional a couple times, but Coach Gags opened up to me in a way he hasn't elsewhere before, and his story and message is really powerful. The man has coached at every level of the sport over the past 58 years, high school, college, and professionally, and he's had great success at all of them. He's coached 15 Olympians, 140 All-Americans, multiple national champions, and a world championships medalist. More importantly than that, however, the lessons he's taught his athletes extend far beyond the track. He has a love for the sport, his family, his athletes, and his country that is unmatched, and it really comes across in this conversation. All right, let's get right to it with the legendary Coach Gags. We're good to go. Um, Frank Gagliano, welcome to the Morning Shakeout Podcast. Thank you very much. Appreciate it, Mario. Well, and thank you for welcoming me, a Red Sox fan, into your home in Westchester County. I know I'm entering enemy territory here. Well, you're going to be gone soon. <laughs> <laughs> That's a great rivalry. Great rivalry. And now the Bruins may win the Stanley Cup. Could ruin it for all New Yorkers, but we won't go there. We're going to talk running today and coaching, uh, and I'm very excited to do so. Let's start with where we are. We're in Rye, New York, where you live. You relocated back here from Eugene, Oregon about 10 years ago. Yes, that's correct. Came back. Uh, we had an illness in the family, and a daughter-in-law passed away, and... Uh, We've been here uh, helping our son uh, raise the two daughters now. Uh, when we got here, they were four and six, and now they're uh, 14 and 16. So uh, we're here in Rye, and we enjoy uh, being close to family. You'd spent many years away during your coaching journey. I mean, you're on the West Coast for a while in Palo Alto and Eugene. You were down coaching collegiately at Georgetown for very many years How's it been being back here, close to where you grew up? You're from the Bronx for the last 10 years or so. Fantastic. You know, uh, it's going to be great. It is great because three of our children are within, uh, you know, 15 minutes to an hour and 15 minutes. And our other daughter and granddaughter in in, uh, Fairfax, Virginia. And uh, our granddaughter that lives in Fairfax is a runner. And she's decided to go to Columbia for her education and be coached by a former athlete of mine, Danny Island. What is it about this area that 
is special for an athlete because it's not known as a hotbed for track and field or running, but it's in fact a great area to train. You know, when I came back in 2009, I asked some of the shoe companies to help us start a club and uh, there wasn't anyone who bought into it here on the East Coast or even all over the country. So I uh, raised, I became a 501c3 and I raised money to uh, get the club going in 2009, 2010 we started. This is a great area. And I, I thank Hoka for taking over three years ago and helping us. This is a great area to run in. Tremendous. You know, the winters are a little tough or very tough, but, you know, you have um, the Armory. They've been great to us. Uh, you know, and we send some people to Florida for six weeks. And so there isn't anything wrong in uh in, in, in developing young athletes and coaching in this area at all. And, uh, you know, we look forward to hopefully the Olympic game, Olympic trials in two years and see what we can do uh, as a group. But, um, you know, it's people have really, really uh, opened their arms to us and, and accepted us. Has it been hard to attract or convince athletes to move here and train with the group? Not really. You got you to gotta want it. I mean, you know, you got to tell them the facts of life. You got to tell them that it's going to be cold and rainy. It's going to snow. And But we do a lot of cross training, but um, and we do a lot of running. And, and like I said, in the wintertime, uh, we go to the armory, uh, which is about 25 minutes from our camp. While we're on the topic. Hello. Just the one. I think it was just the, the breeze gave it, gave it a blow. But while we're on the topic, when you're bringing an athlete onto your team now or they express some interest in coming out here to train with you, what are you looking for in a New Jersey, New York track club athlete? I'm looking for a person that really wants to work hard, has a dream uh, you know, of making the Olympic trials, making the finals of the Olympic trials, and possibly making the Olympic team. And uh, that's what I'm looking for. I'm looking for a person that wants to be a great teammate and also people who are very loyal to each other and loyal to the team. You've created a real family atmosphere with your team here, and that's something that I know you have fostered throughout your coaching career. Why is that important? Well, I mean, you got to train together. You got to live together. And, uh, you know, you got to compete against other clubs. And there are some great clubs in this country. And people are doing great jobs all over the country now with the clubs. And uh, you better be ready to compete. And you better be ready to, um, you know, work hard together and fulfill a dream. How do you make it work out here? It's not, as you mentioned before, great weather year-round. You go into the city, 
to the armory where you work out indoors. You were telling me on the drive over here about the school that you've partnered with. I'd love to just learn how you have leveraged the community here to support the team and then in turn how the team also supports the local community here. Well, you know, we've been fortunate, like I said, three years ago at Hoka, uh, coming in and really helping us a lot. And, and um, our athletes are based in, uh, you know, Western Westchester, which is uh, a great area. And uh, we've been very fortunate with the Master's School in Dobbs Ferry, where um, Kevin Verson is the AD and Three years ago, um, he opened the opportunity for us to use the facility. And uh, and over the last three years, there's five or six of our men and women who are coaching their junior high and high school team. So we got involved with the school. The athletes did. And, uh, you know, we, we train at 10 o'clock in the morning till you know, maybe one, and we're allowed to use their pool and weight room during those hours. And um, so, I mean, we have everything. And the other thing is the physicians in town and in the area have really taken an interest in us, and they've have, uh, you know, opened their doors to us where we can call and get our athletes in in case of injuries and so forth. Uh, We have a lot of people that are supporting us, uh, in this area, medically and 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 everything, and and this is what we need if uh, we're going to keep our athletes healthy and, and get them healthy. You mentioned some of the athletes are coaching at the school in Dobbs Ferry, where you guys do your workouts. How has that been, not just for them individually, but for generating some local excitement for the team? It's it's been good. I mean, uh, you know. The parents at the high school recognize that there are athletes and so forth, and uh, you know they they look up to them or they communicate with them well about the sport and so forth. And can their son or daughter someday be like them? And so uh, I mean, it, it's everything has been positive with the master school uh, and 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 the people in uh, in Westchester County. And also the Armory. I mean, the Armory has been very good to us. Has the group fulfilled your vision for what you thought it would be 10 years ago when you moved back here and started it? In 2012, we had an Olympian by the name of... um, Julie Culley. Julie Culley, who is now the director of track and field at Georgetown. And uh, and then in 16, you know, Don made the team. And uh, uh, that, that, that was a, a great thing, too, with Julie making a team, Don making the team. And, uh, yeah, I, I think I really do. I think we've done a great job, and, and the athletes have done a great job. And when you ask me a question like that, Mario, uh, the key is in 2020, we got to put some people on the Olympic team. And, uh, you know, we broke the world record in the four by eight. 
I believe, right? Four by mile. Uh, all right, four by mile, right? Mm -hmm. And then that we just they just broke it. Uh, Brooks Beast beat us uh, the other day, and or in, indoor season. And uh, I mean, you know, we're getting very positive publicity. I mean, I know Johnny Gagoric was grandfathered into our team. He's an A6 athlete, but he's a major part. He's a major part of our team also. And when he ran 349.9 or 0.8, young man out of Columbia, no one even heard of him, Robert Napolitano, second year with us, uh, 354, a real young kid out of uh, North Jersey, Ramapo College, 355, by the name of Jeremy Hernandez. You know, just recently, Travis Mahoney opens up at 828 in the steeple and you know, just the other night, um, Chris Geestings, this is his third year with me, a great quarter miler out of Notre Dame that we moved up into the 800, ran 146.6, I believe it was, in, in Atlanta. And, you know, Jesse Garn. And, yeah, I, I think we're, we're doing what we have to do. But we really want to be on the big stage come in 2020. What's kept you in it? To this point, because before the 2016 Olympic trials, there's a big article that one of your athletes wrote, Liam Boylan Pett, uh, who introduced us that it was going to be your last trials and you were going to step back from coaching a little bit. But by the sounds of it, you're still full on. You're at practice every week. You're meeting with the athletes. You're writing their training schedules. We just discussed how you possibly go to the 2020 trials in Eugene, are you surprised at all to still be working full-time as a coach at 82 years old? No, I'm not really working full-time. I mean, I go to practice twice a week. That's when we meet. Um, I don't travel so uh, that much. But, no, I, I, I'm not surprised because there's two things. My heart and my mind is in it big time. And as long as those... To continue to be in it and my health thank the good lord at the age of 82 is very good and uh you know i i love it and i uh i'm not ready to pack it in at all actually i have a lot of fire in my belly as much fire as you've always had no i get tired so <laughs> I mean, I, 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 there's a lot in there, but it's not as much. And uh, I got to take my naps, too. What's kept that fire burning in the last few years? To go to practice and see these men and women busting their butts and sacrificing all the college graduates. Uh, and and busting their butts to fulfill the dream. So that keeps my fire because uh, they can all be making a lot of money in the world, in the business world or any other thing, but they really want to, they want to run and they want to, they want to do the best they can in the sport of track and field. Let's go back to your beginnings. You didn't get into coaching with the goal of being a track coach. You wanted to coach football. And correct me if I'm wrong, as I understand it, 
you started coaching track because they promised you the football job if the school that you were working at ever got a football team. And here we are, I don't know how many years later, probably close to 60, and you're still coaching track. Well, it's been 50, 58 years later when I went to Roseau Catholic High School in uh, January of... Uh, January of uh, 19, what is it, 61. I came back from Canadian football that fall, and uh, I wanted to coach football bad. I played the game in high school, and I was, thank God I was successful. I played the game at Richmond University, and I, and I played up in Canada. And then I wanted to coach football, and I came back, and the principal, Brother Victor, at the Marist Brothers School at Roselle Catholic said, hey, coach, I mean, Frank, I, I really want to start football, and uh, just be patient, and um, we'll have football, and uh, you, you can be the coach. So uh, two months later, he said, you know, would you mind starting a track team here? We don't have a track team. I didn't even know what a stopwatch was. And uh, I said, okay, as long as I know I'm going to be the football coach. And I started track, no football, kept on coaching track, no football. In 1965, four young men uh, won the double at the Penn Relays in high school. And uh, I never... Had the opportunity. I had opportunities. People asked me to leave and coach football, but now I was really ingrained in um, in coaching the sport of track and field, and I never turned back. And um, the men and women. All these 58 years have been tremendous. Loyal. Great to work with. And I never regret coaching, uh, not coaching football. It's been tremendous. Why did that recollection make you so emotional just now? The Penn Relay team Roseau Catholic um, Tour Deceased One of the Deceased Was a Hall of Fame Army Ranger. And now we're building a track. In his name, at Roseau Catholic High School. In New Jersey. 
Colonel Robert Hoffman. When will the track be built and dedicated? Um, the, the bottom layer is put down already, and we still need about another 100000 and put the top layer down. And so... It's one of your earliest athletes. Yeah. But he's just one of many. Um, and, you know, to see people getting married, you see people with children, see people with sons or daughters who come back and I coach the fathers or the mothers and they come back and run for me now and all of this is you know it's relationships big time that's what it's all about big time that's the family part of it that you instill yeah I appreciate that and um if um You know, if a person or an athlete uh, comes at me or my staff, and I have a great staff, Tommy Nohilly and John Troutman are just tremendous. And uh, when they, they were come, two of your athletes too, if I'm not oh, mistaken. Yeah, yeah, Troutman was an Olympian for me at Georgetown in '92. And Tommy, I met in '92 at the Olympic trials when he missed the team by about. One one hundredth, and then he came with me in D.C. with the uh, Reebok Enclave, and in '96 he met the team by another one one hundredth, and he finished fourth twice. And he never quit the sport. He's doing great things to help these men and women achieve their goals. So, I mean, um, it's just. You got to be a family if you're going to be successful, you know. And if a person, a male or a female, is not happy, you know, they come in and talk, and we move on in life and so forth. But to keep this thing going, you got to pull together. Got to pull together, and you know, in competition, and uh, you know. I don't go to altitude. I've never been to altitude in my life. My altitude is the subway. Go up the steps and be at 168th Street or anywhere. So it's from the subway up. I don't go to altitude. I don't. We don't need altitude, you know. We just need people who want it. I think that's as important a training effect than whatever physiological benefits running in thin air will give you to have that resistance that in your case, like in here with these athletes you're working with now to compete at the level they want to compete at, they've got to want it. They've got to get on that train and get into New York which is probably a one-hour, close to a one-hour trip from here. No, it's only, 
they drive, uh, you know. Then I did it wrong this morning. I'm yeah, no, yeah, but no, I mean it's uh, yeah, but, but it's something to work against, and that, and I think that I think that toughens you up or calluses you in a certain exactly. way. Exactly. And you take that with you to the track yeah, when you yeah. compete. Exactly. I like that analogy. And uh, it's, it's 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 amazing. I mean, you know, it's. And, you know, you, like I said to you, why I broke down and, uh, you know, you, you see these, uh, you know, you see them growing up. And you see the young ones now, you know, the young ones now. Uh, hey, coach, how come I can't finish that last 70 meters of the 800? Well, maybe we've got to work on a little more strength and be patient. You just got with me now in September, and it's it's a new system, but it's going to help. I mean, you just got to believe, and uh, you got to believe. You're you know? really you're coaching people more than you're coaching the athlete. I would say. Yeah. Is that is yeah. that accurate? But it's it's a great mix. It's not it's not only people. It's a mixture of people and athletes in one person yeah it, it, it's so important that you know you're dealing them in a period of time to help them prepare for life too you know and I always say if you have a tough race you move to the next chapter and get ready you close the book for a night and get ready, and uh, that that it's so important because that's what life is. That's what life is. How important is it for you when you take on a new athlete to get to know them as a person first before you ever watch them step on the track or watch a workout, or do you learn about them as a person by watching how they handle themselves on the track during a workout? Well, you don't get to really know them much. I mean, you talk to their coach. And I've been very fortunate that the coaches have been very honest with me. They're collegiate coaches. And uh, so you get to know them by listening to what their coach tells you. But then when they come here, then you get to know them. You know, you, you know you're on the phone with them. You pull them on the side at practice. And, and you're two fellow coaches that are helping you know also about them. And they talk to you about them and so forth. It's, uh, you know, I mean, you, you, you got to get into their lives and, and they, they got to give into your, to you too to tell you what's on their minds when you go to practice or, you know, getting ready for a meet and so forth. But, uh, I mean, like I said, uh, the athletes are sacrificing in this country the majority of them for to be successful because they they made the decision to keep the sport going you look at the high schools mario the feeding system that we have in this country from high school the feeding system that we have from this, these colleges we have a great sport and you go back, 
We didn't have many clubs when I started in 1961 at Roselle Catholic. And then when I went to Georgetown in 1983, I started a little club of post-collegiate runners called the Sally May Track Club. People forgot about that. And Butch Brown, Dorian Lambelet. Dorian is a lawyer now. I haven't seen her in years, but she wrote some articles on this last thing to do with um, the young lady who is being questioned about should she run in... Castor Semenya. Yeah. I read that article. Okay. Dorian was with me. Uh, and then all of a sudden, then I had the Reebok Enclave and coaching at Georgetown and doing it with, you know, my fellow coaches. And, and then, then I went, when Vin called me in 2001... 2000 and said, hey, why don't you come out here with me and um, start the uh, Nike farm team. And all of this has developed and all of a sudden Alberto came along and this one came along and this, you know, there were clubs before like the Oregon Track Club and all that. But now... They took on some prominence. Yeah. Which is great. Which is great. I mean, just the other night we went to Atlanta I mean, you know, Rich Canal ran for me. He's the head of Atlanta Track Club, and he has a club now. And, you know, Robert Gary down at Furman has a great club, and Tom down at D.C. has a great club. And, I mean, there's very good clubs around for these men and women to get involved in. Boston, BAA. Uh, I mean, and plus the West Coast, you know, is loaded. You're not a man who has a huge ego, but do you take some pride in that, knowing that you helped to kickstart it? Sure. Of course I do. Of course I do, because I see these men and women. You know, I mean, hey, I went up to Yale three months after Kate Grace graduated with Mark Young, her coach. We talked to Kate. Kate came with me for a year or two, and, uh, you know, she decided to move out to the West Coast go with Wazell, hey, and look at her now. You know, Jerry's doing a great job with her. Uh, you know, I mean, she's run like, what, fantastic times. She made know. an Olympic team. Yeah. Interestingly, I interviewed her a couple years ago. She was just transitioning from her situation in Sacramento to Oregon, work with Jerry and his group. And I asked her about the different coaches that she's worked with over the years. And she said, I'll link this interview in the show notes to the podcast. Her time with you here in New Jersey, New York, with the track club were the most formative of her professional career and gave her the confidence that she could compete at that level. And even though you weren't coaching her when she made the Olympic team, she doesn't feel like she could have done it without the time she spent under your tutelage. Well, thank you. And, um, you know, she's she's been great. I mean, she'll call periodically, not much, but and I wouldn't want her to, but, uh, 
You know, she had a bumpy road. Uh, the gentleman out in Sacramento, I can't think of his name, but he did a great job with her. Drew Wartenberg. Great job. And then, you know, she went with Jerry. Jerry's doing a tremendous job with her. Uh, but again, you go back many, many years and there wasn't much around. And now it's it's blossomed. It's blossomed. I mean, you know, look, look, look at... I can imagine all my fellow coaches at post-collegiate coaches just looking at the NCAA coming up. Who's out there, men and women, who would love to run post-collegiately? I mean, and it's going to be, it's going to be very interesting who goes where and who goes here and who goes there after 2020. You know? Do you think we need more post-collegiate clubs in this country for the sport to continue to grow and thrive? I think we need clubs in the Midwest, you know, maybe one or two clubs. Spreading them out a bit. Yeah, I really do. I think it, uh, the Midwest um, could use a couple of more clubs. I don't think the West Coast needs them. I mean, you, you, know, you got enough with San Diego and Eugene, and you got a doubleheader in Portland with Alberto and Jerry, and, you know, I mean. You think the Midwest struggles? because of geography and weather? No, I don't, because <laughs> they got some tremendous facilities out there. I mean, with that new... I haven't been to the Spire. Is it called Spire uh, uh, in Ohio? I think that's correct, but I'm not positive myself. Yeah, and, I mean, there's so many good facilities and so many... Uh, there's great collegiate programs in the Midwest as well, so obviously it can be done. I mean, fantastic. Look at the Big Tens. I mean, you know, look, look what's going on out there. You know, with Indiana and Wisconsin and every one of them, and, you know, Michigan and so forth. I mean, keep them home. Yeah. Keep them home. How important is that to have athletes training close to maybe where they grew up or where they want to be rather than forcing them to move to the West Coast, maybe where they've never been, or you know, just somewhere to train where they're in an environment where they don't really know anyone outside of their teammates and they're not comfortable. Because a lot of your athletes are from this area, and I think that's pretty special. Very important. And I recruited a young lady, and her coach was a fantastic man, Perrier from New Hampshire. Now, everybody was after her. Everybody. Who's up front with me? Her coach was. She wants to stay local, and there she is now. I believe running with Saucony. I'm 100% sure what company, but she's running great. She's staying local. She's coached by Mark Coogan. She's comfortable up there and running fantastic. So environment's important. She wanted to stay close to home. It's important. Let's go back to the early parts of your career. You talked about how you played football and eventually 
gave that up and got into track coaching because you wanted to coach football. But did you compete in track and field yourself as an athlete in high school or college, or was it completely new to you when you got the job at Rizal Catholic? I I, um, I was just telling my grandkids, I got cut in baseball as a freshman in high school. I really loved baseball. Okay. I played a lot of baseball in the Bronx and so forth. But then I threw the javelin in high school. And then I went to the University of Richmond, and I played football, but I also threw the javelin. And uh, so I had some track background. When I was a high school kid, my high school football coach told me, uh, hey, Frank, uh, you don't have the leg speed, and you should go out for track. And I went out for track and ran uh, just to try to get my speed up because my lateral movement as a quarterback was horrible. I could drop back and I could throw, but uh, so I, I had some experience in track. You're kind of like Tom Brady then. <laughs> yeah. Guy can throw, my, but he can't move that well. Minus millions of dollars. <laughs> <laughs> um, and now you coach primarily middle distance and distance runners, 800 to the 5,000, maybe 10,000 occasionally. Uh, how did you end up landing there, coaching that specific type of athlete and not field athletes, not sprinters? When I was at Georgetown, when I went out, first of all, when I went from uh, Roseau Catholic to... Uh, Manhattan College? I went to Manhattan with Freddie Dwyer. We had some great sprinters and mile relays and so forth. And uh, then, then I went to uh, uh, from Manhattan. I went to Rutgers, and we had very good uh, sprinters and quarter miles. And one one great one was Elliot Quow, who was second in the world in the world championships in the two hundred meters. He ran twenty point two. And then I had Brian Grimes, Walter Kirkland. I had a, I recruited. The whole Mom Vernon mile relay except one leg. And now I go by to high school on my way to New York or somewhere. And there they are at, Esmond, at Mom Vernon High School where three athletes came with me. I had Denzel Washington's brother, David Washington. I had Walter Kirkman, Val Jean Garrett. I can tell you all these guys' names. And we had a great mile relay. Then I went to Georgetown and we ran 304 at Georgetown. You know, and, uh, you know, I am... I loved all of them. Great hurdlers, you know, Eugene Norman at Rutgers. And, uh, I mean, I, I had great teams. I didn't, um, great triple jumper at Manhattan, Kenny McBride, and all shot putters. And don't forget Kevin McMahon, coached by the great Harold Conley when I was at Georgetown. Kevin McMahon, two, two three-time Olympian in the hammer. He came with me out of uh, Catholic High School in uh in San Francisco, that area, and the Bay Area, and he was—he's a great thrower. Peter Sear from Rhode Island. So I love the full team. I love full team because ten points in a hammer is equal to ten points in any other event. And uh, I mean, really full team. Do you think that comes from your football background, being part of a team, and everyone has a role and contributes to the overall success yes. of the group? Yes. Mm -hmm. Definitely. Would you say you run your programs like a football coach, even though you never yes. got the opportunity to definitely. do that? Definitely, definitely. Um, even my curse words have changed. I <laughs> haven't changed, but anyway. <laughs> Go ahead. How did you educate yourself as 
a young coach who hadn't competed in a lot of these events yourself. You threw javelin, uh, so you had some experience with that, but you weren't one who competed in the mile or the 5,000 or any of that, and you coach a lot of those athletes now with great success. How did you learn how to write their training, how to work with them? Pick up the phone, talk to different coaches throughout the country, introduce myself. I had the fortune of working with Freddie Dwyer, a great miler at Villanova. He taught me a lot. Um, I never, I called Buddy, I visited Georgia Tech with Buddy Folks down there in Grover. Taught me a lot about, you know, the quarter mile. Um, I was fortunate enough to spend many years uh, with Matt Sensuit Sr., who, you know, brought some ideas from Dillinger to me and so forth. He started the Enclave with you. Yeah. Or was part of it. Yeah. yeah, he was part of it, yeah. And um, so, uh, but making a lot of calls, um, putting the X and O's and all that. You know, I just want to, I have, uh, it's amazing that you're here, Mario. In my garage and here and in my garage, I have every workout from 1982 to present. I'd love to fish some of those out with you if we can afterward. Look at them. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. If you'd, if you'd allow me. Maybe not. Maybe we don't have the time. That's a lot of workouts. Well, what I can do is I'll give you a folder, but you make sure you send it back. Sure. Be happy. Yeah. And, uh, it's all in pencil. It's the legal pad. Love it. I'll, I'll definitely uh, give you a pad, and you can look them over. This is amazing. Thank you. And uh, so, you know, getting back to your question, you know, and, and the, the thing is, um, the big philosophy that tells you about our program, strength plus speed equals a champion. You got to put in the strengths. An example, 10 times a thousand. An example, tempos. An example, speed, 200s, 300s, 400s, 800 meters, 600s, 400s, 500s. Strength plus speed equals a champion. And the other two things is recovery days. They got to learn how to recover. Go out and communicate with the birds. And don't go hammering every day. Do you find that's detrimental for a lot of athletes? They tend to go out and hammer day after a workout to try and prove something? Yes. That's a good word, detrimental. That's all the word I just learned today. Anyway, <laughs> go ahead. Go ahead. Um, and how did you, or I shouldn't say how, but when did you have that light bulb moment that strength plus speed equals success? Did you learn that early on, or did your thinking evolve over the course of several decades? No, I, I didn't learn that early on. Mm -mm. But that's my thinking after 58 years, or during 58 years, and, and, and really uh, 
really put it into their heads. And, uh, you know, I've been fortunate, 15 Olympians. I've been fortunate, 800 meters. I've been very fortunate how many milers I've coached and still coaching and still watch. I mean, I watched this young kid, German, uh, Jeremy Hernandez. I think he ran like 359 in college. 355. He's a puppy yet. A puppy. Got great speed. He's strong. Robert Napolitano. I mean, 354. And I bring up these names, and I can bring up Merber. Merber, 352. Unfortunately, he's hurt right now. But Kyle. Kobe Alexander, 334. He's got problems in his Achilles. I mean, I, I can go down a list. I'm, I'm missing people. The Holman, Steve Holman, and Johnny Gagore. I mean, uh, my, my first, and he calls me once a week to remind me, Ron Spears at Rutgers, my first four-minute miler. First four-minute miler, he'll call me once a week. Hey, Gag, this is your four-minute miler. Uh, no kidding. You know? That's an amazing story. Every week. Every week. Does it ever get old? Never. Because, uh, you know, he cares about my family. Yeah. And uh, he ran for me at Rutgers. And, and you know, Mike Roach, a great Olympian in the steeplechase. And uh, fell over the last barrier. Um, you got that photo up here? Yeah. In the office? Uh, somewhere, I think. We'll look for it. You know, the Olympians are up there on that side. And, uh, uh, and, and the Olympic trials in Eugene, he fell over the last barrier, broke his wrist, but leaned and made the Olympic team. I'm not sure if it was 68 or 72. Yeah. And uh, I mean, they'll, they'll stop by. He lives in New England. His mom lives in Jersey, and he'll stop by. And, hey, Gag, how's Miss, how's Robbie? And I. Canine, 96. Uh, it was four rounds back then, Mario, in, uh, in Atlanta in the 800 meters. In the first three rounds, he looked like a million dollars. And, you know, I tell him what my strategy is. He followed that strategy for the first three rounds. But the fourth round, he went a little too soon. He got nailed at the tape. Uh, you know... You see these young men and women come through the paddock area and finish fourth in the Olympic trials. It's a tough thing. You have to hug them and console them and so forth because Ronnie Harris finished third in the Olympic trials in the United States Naval Academy. He was running for me with the Reebok Enclave. Finished third but didn't have a qualifying time. Back then, you could send him over to Europe and try, and then he just missed the qualifying time by a little bit. And then, you know, I could tell you all these people, you know. Uh, you got names on names on names. Yeah, and... If you had to estimate, how many, how many athletes do you think you've directly worked with throughout the course of your career? I have no idea. Well into the hundreds, if not thousands? Plus? Yeah, I have no idea. 
that doesn't make any difference. It's it's much as uh, to read or talk or hear how they're doing in life means everything to me. It really does. For you as a coach, what are the most challenging situations to deal with? And I don't mean specific ones, but in general, what are the hardest moments for you? To see a young man or young woman injured and hoping and praying that they can get back ASAP. We have about nine weeks left till we go to a sauna bath in Des Moines with the heat and so forth. And to see some of them, a couple of them, injured, and I know how good they are. I mean, I know how good they are. But, you know, can they make it? We don't know. That That's the toughest thing. That is the toughest thing. I'd have to agree with that. From my own experience as a coach, especially as a big race gets closer, they're six weeks out in this case, nine weeks out, and they want to be building confidence and developing that fitness, and they're stuck, or they're in a pool, or they're at the PT more often than they want to be, and it's out of your control. Yeah, but you know what? I agree. But if they cross-train an hour and a half, two hours a day, that's the strength that they're not missing. They're missing the speed. I'll never forget in 2008, I took Nick Simmons to Southern California. And we ran a 1500. And he got knocked down. And then his knee got spiked up bad. I took him to, now it's 8.30 at night. I took him to two or three emergency rooms, different hospitals. It was jammed. And then I call a physician in Eugene. And I said, Nick is spiked up bad. Can I get him to see him when we come off the plane? And the doctor said, of course. I'll be in my office 6 a.m. waiting for you, 7 a.m. And he, he made sure it was sewed up properly and took good care of it and so forth. He says, put him in a pool. And Nick is a great swimmer, great swimmer. And he swam his butt off for three or four weeks before I, well, maybe a little less before I could run him again. And came back and made our Olympic team. Came back and... And like I told you before, Mario, it's probably the greatest race I ever witnessed in all these years. I can hear the crowd still cheering because of Simmons, Weeding, Christian Smith, three locals coming out of Eugene, Oregon, training out of Eugene, and then making our Olympic team. While we're on it, let's talk about that race. Where were you standing during it? I have, uh, I've been fortunate uh, knowing people in Eugene, and I stand by the great Bowerman t statue. I really feel. On the fourth turn. 
100 meters to go. Yeah, right, where the curve meets the straight. Right. And I, I try to stand... I stand there or I try to sit there when I was, you know, always with 100 meters to go. But, uh, yep, that's where I was. And um, it was just, it was just so exciting, you know. And just like when Tully won the American Championships in 15, I was there. And when, um, uh, 2012. Julie Cully made five thousand. Yeah, that's where I stand. And you know, Nick. Um, yeah, I mean, you know, it's uh, that's where I love to stay, love to sit, and uh, but again, you know, course training is so important, so important. I mean, swimming. I mean, I I'm. Oh, we could talk about elliptical. We could talk about biking. Swimming underwater can really help an athlete learn how to swim underwater. What is it about swimming underwater that can help the athlete? I'm not a medical man, but... (laughs) (laughs) Neither am I. But all I know is that that's the strength that we can use when we're injured. How much of it do you think is the mental strength that cross-training creates that helps as much as the physical strength that it develops? Because oftentimes cross-training, especially for a runner, it can be mind-numbing, it's arduous work, it's not particularly enjoyable, but as you said, you can develop that that physical strength that you're missing from not being able to run, but I think mentally it strengthens you as well. Of course, of course. And yeah, it's boring, but you know what? Do you want it? If you want it, you got to cross train. If you want it, if you don't want it, don't cross train. You gotta want it, and that's the strength that you gotta take an hour, an hour and a half a day when you can't run. You can't run. You know, I'm very good friends with Vin Lunana, and then when he was up at Dartmouth, and he had a guy named Campanian. Won the marathon trials. Thank you. Bob. Thank you. He got hurt, and he cross-trained his butt off for months. I don't know the whole story, but I know Vin told, told me. For months. And you know what? He won the marathon trials. But you got to want it. This thing here, the heart, is so important. To go to a gym or go to an outdoor pool and bust your butt and work and stop feeling sorry for yourself. Stop feeling sorry for yourself and get in there and work. You you, you can't lie down. Bring this back to coaching in general. One thing I like about you and I've learned during the course of this conversation, things that I've read about you is I call you more of a psychological coach than a physiological coach. And that's not to disparage the benefits of the training or the specifics of the work that you're doing. But oftentimes now we were talking about this before we got on the mics, 
there is almost an overemphasis for coaches to have a certain degree, to have a certification of some sort. And obviously you have to have knowledge. You got to know what you're doing when you're working with an athlete because this is pretty serious stuff when you're programming their training. But how much more important or how important do you view the psychological side of it, the relationship side of it, the understanding the person before programming the athlete side of it? Do you think that's underemphasized? Of course. Definitely. And I, I think I mentioned to you, I don't want to say, you know, maybe 60-40 or 70-30, but the mental side is so, so important. And the coaching comes behind the mental side or working with the mental side. Just the other night, I had two hard-working young ladies go down to Atlanta, and they did not run well. And that night, I have them always call me after they race when I'm not there, if the time difference isn't too bad, and... They went 27.57 on the way for an 800 meter. It's too fast. We're not there. They're not, they're not 27.57. They definitely can be 58.61. Or they can be 59.62. So I told them, don't worry about it. Get home. Do a little workout after the meet. I'll talk to you. Get home. Go communicate with the birds for a couple days. We'll talk Monday. We get back to training. I mean, it's so important. Close the chapter and move on. Get ready for the next one. Next one is Nashville. It's important to have a short-term memory as an athlete. Exactly. Forget about it. Forget about it. I have to forget about it. I'm, here's the workouts for Monday. I'm up here doing my thing. I, this is way I. This is the way I want to be, and this is the way I want them to think. How do you continue to stay sharp at age 82 after 58 years of coaching? Staying healthy, the first thing. You know, I try to walk a mile a day. I try to, you know, watch what I eat. You know, take good care of my wife, my children, my grandchildren. But my second family are my athletes. And uh, like I told you, Mario... A little while ago on this interview, as long as your heart and your mind is in it, don't shortchange your athletes. You know, Mario, I never made more than $100,000 in this sport as a coach. Never. Never. I don't give a damn. All I know is we're happy. 
and I, I see all these young men and women that have come true with me and my assistants or fellow coaches. They're not assistants, they're fellow coaches. Uh, it makes me proud. And uh, I'm telling you some personal things, but uh, I don't care. I mean, I'm happy for the people in the sport who are making a lot of money. I'm happy that they're taking care of track coaches. But that doesn't mean anything. I mean, I'm happy for them and their families, but uh, I'm not. Uh, I'm not worried about that. I'm more concerned getting a couple of key athletes healthy, and more concerned of what we can do down the road. Will I stay in the sport after 2020? I hope so, as long as I'm healthy. You know, and. Uh, I mean, to see a Johnny Gagoric run 3.49. I wasn't there. I saw a replay. Tommy and John went. And, you know, I don't care if it was an indoor place, a great track. The air is tremendous. People up there really love the sport. He ran 3.49. All right. 3.49. And, not, you know, not many American milers have run that fast. No. And, you know, leading up to it, we were doing things that we changed in that race. And, but, I mean, my daughter had it on in Virginia. My wife and I had it on my phone on a speaker. And my daughter had the race and I was listening to the race because I don't get all these little I don't cost a lot of money to watch the sport if you're not well I mean uh, that's I'm, another uh, yeah, conversation but for another anyway, day but uh, I don't get involved with that but anyway my daughter had it on and and the announcer said so and so just broke the world record and Johnny good God I went crazy I thought the guy was crazy 349 and then the other kids behind him but it was a great race. The American, I mean, the, you know, the Albertos groups and, and, and Brooks, Beast, and they ran great too. Great. You get just as excited now for your athletes as you did 10 years ago, 20 years ago, 30 years ago. <sighs> yes, but when you're not there with them, it's a little tough, when you, especially when you're waiting for a phone call or Tommy or John call me right after the race. You know, you're sitting there and you know it's nine ten, and, you know. Uh, Getting antsy. Yeah. But that's the way it goes. Well, I appreciate your openness and honesty with me there. You mentioned your wife a couple times, Robbie, who I was fortunate enough to meet when I got here this morning. She's been with you throughout the duration of this coaching career that you've dedicated your life to. How important is her support and your family's support in allowing you to do what you do at the level that you do it? Fantastic. Yeah, I mean, she's been great. She's been great. You know, uh, she's very supportive. You know, I got to be careful that, you know, we, we do a lot of things together, you know, and we don't go many places, but, you know, we help each other. And 
You know, in 2011, she got sick. Uh, but she's doing very, very well now. Um, and, you know, I take her down 168th Street, Columbia Presbyterian, and we see doctors there. And we're the greatest city in the world for doctors. I mean, they're the best. And uh, But see, that's a lesson that I've learned over the years that I try to convey with the athletes. You're going to run into bumps in the road. You're going to run into roadblocks as an athlete. But that's also going to teach you how to handle things in life down the road. It's not going to be easy. Life is going to be tougher than the sport of track and field. Big time. But what you learn in track and field can help you through those tough moments in life. That's right. That's right. What advice would you give, it's a very selfish question, to a young coach sitting across from you in his late 30s who is looking to do this for the duration of his own professional career? Take care of your family. That's the first thing. The second thing is make sure you give your athletes 100% the best you can. And um, take care of yourself, too. It's key because if you're, not, if you're sick, the family will suffer. If you're sick, your athletes will suffer or get sick and so forth. But... Uh, you know, try to give, you know, your family a larger percentage of your of your time and so forth. But don't forget those men and women or boys and girls who um, are looking at you and looking up to you or saying, how am I doing, coach, or so far it's important I appreciate that thank you I, I really mean it it's important it could be done and you know that's why I mentioned to you at the start of this conversation that I'd never been nominated for an Olympic coach or never been assistant but it, it Maybe now it bothers me in later life. But you can't do everything. You can't have a family. You can't have a team. And then spend two or three months in Europe and all that. You can't. Something's going to suffer. And so, yeah, I take pride in what we have done my coaches and my athletes, but I never, I never want to say, God, I am really, I, why, why is I not an Olympic? No, my, my, my Olympic team are, my Olympic team is my athletes, and I respect the United. I love the United States. I love the flag. You know, I put eight years in the Marine Corps. As a reservist. I went to Officers Candidate School from 1956 to 1962. We, uh, 
two summers at Quantico. I put eight years in the reserves. When I graduated and I went to Canada, I didn't, I didn't take my commission because I wanted to play Canadian football. And I went right into the reserves as a sergeant. And then um, I came back from Canadian football and I fell between Korea and, North, and uh, Vietnam. And I was in the reserves, but I was now a teacher. And back then... High school teacher? Yeah, coaching at Roosevelt Catholic. And back then, they didn't take teachers out of the education to bring them into the service. And so I, I was going into reserves every summer, uh, going to meetings every month. And uh, so I, I put in my eight years, and the flag means a lot to me, a lot. Is that something you knew you always wanted to do? Yes. To serve the country? Yes. From Def a young age? Definitely. Definitely. Where did that come from? Is it instilled in you by your parents, or is it just a pride that developed as you were growing up? Pride. Pride. No doubt about it. It's pride. How formative were those years for you? What do you mean? Serving the country for eight years as a reservist. How has that informed your, or how did that inform your perspective when you came out? I love my country. I love my country. Uh, the flag. It's it's very, very important to me. Very important. I mean, why? I, I, I wanted to go to office, you know, platoon leader class. They called it back then at Quantico. I have my, you know, my papers and everything, and I, it was great, or it is great. You know one thing I do every day? When I'm driving, if I see a flag once a day, the left hand is on the steering wheel. Right hand is a salute. That's me. And I'm not commenting about anything that goes on in this country. Frank Cagliano loves the flag. Thank you for your service, Coach Gags. Appreciate that, too. A couple more things before we wrap up. I think we've been going over an hour here. That's and okay. I want to be respectful of your time. One thing I have read about you, your athletes have told me, and I know is core to your philosophy as a coach, but probably your life philosophy in general, is you believe in competing. 
you're a competitive guy yourself from what I've been told and what I've observed. What does competition mean to you and why is it so important to always compete? Well, you know, you work hard to be a winner as a coach and you instill that in your athletes. But you also work hard to see a person, whether they finished second, third, or years ago, a young man at Georgetown, Kevin Burke, finished eighth in the Big East Championships at 10,000 meters. And you thought he won the Olympic gold. He was so happy. And he remembers that. He remembers one point. So being a competitor doesn't only have to be in first, second, third. But being a competitor also is when you know you've given everything to score a point or to send a PB, a personal best, that's the key. A PB, there's nothing wrong with that. That's tremendous. It's the best you've ever been. That's it. You've worked your butt off to run a PB and and to see how happy a person is and to see how happy teammates are for him or her to score a point and so forth. How Did does I that, answer your question? Part of it. How well, does that ahead. competitive mindset spill over into the rest of your life? I like to help people. I mean, you know, I, I really like to help people who are not related to the sport of track and field and who are um, nothing to do with athletics or anything. I, I love to help people. Uh, I, you know, again, Mario, I don't, I don't, I don't know how to answer that. But I hold door for people. I'm, I was taught thank you and you're welcome all the time, those two words. I, you know, again, it's tough. I, I just don't know how to... Well, no, I think that does answer it. I think I think, um, I think, um, coach is more than just your profession and what you've done for the last 58 years. I help people. You, you help people well, find I mean, the best in themselves and help bring it out. I help people... Who may be having trouble across the street because of age or illness. I'll always stop and help people. Um, yeah, I, I I take my time to respect people. I really respect. Uh, people of color it means a lot to me. Um, you see that on your team. You've got one of the most diverse groups in the entire country. I've had that all my life. All my life. Rutgers. Manhattan. Georgetown. All my life. I was brought up. I was brought up. We're all equal. 
We're all I was brought special. up that way. With mom and dad, I was brought up in the Bronx. Um, you know, when I was at many of my colleges, um, I, I roomed a black athlete with a white athlete on a road. Always. Um, yeah. You know, it's the way, it's the way I was brought up. And, uh, I won't change. Never. You know, we, things are going in society and so forth. You know, I don't, I don't get involved with that, but I won't change. But you lead by example. I yes. Think that's important. Definitely. Definitely. My last question. You've worked with a tremendous amount of athletes over the years, tremendous athletes amongst those numbers had a huge impact on their athletic careers and their lives. You've arguably had a huge impact on the sport as a whole and your involvement in it at different levels from coaching high school, college, post-collegiately. What legacy do you hope to leave on the craft of coaching in the sport of track and field? Giving 100%, to the people whom I came in contact with as adults and men and women and boys and girls that I've coached of my time and effort to help them succeed in life and to see them feel good about themselves after they left the sport of track and field. Thank you for taking the time to speak with me today and for this master class in coaching and living life. I really appreciate it. I've been here 10 years and maybe one or two people have taken the time to come up and talk to me like you did. And... Uh, I'm just gag. That's the way I'm going to stay. And uh, I know that I'm not perfect. But I'll give my time to people who take the time to come and see me. It's an honor and a pleasure. Thank, Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you. All right, we did it. Thank you so much for listening in. I really hope you enjoyed the show. If you'd like to show your support for the podcast, please share this episode on your preferred social media platform and encourage your friends and followers to tune in. You can also leave a rating and review on Apple Podcasts or whatever platform you're listening to this on, which will help new listeners discover the show, and it really means a lot to me. Lastly, you can support my work directly by making a contribution on Patreon by going to themorningshakeout.com slash support. Before we wrap up, I'd like to thank my man John Summerford of BearsRecords.com. He takes care of all my audio needs for this show, including the music, which he made himself, and he's a big part of my small team here at The Morning Shakeout. 
Last thing, if you're digging the podcast, I encourage you to sign up for my newsletter. It's also called The Morning Shakeout at themorningshakeout.com slash subscribe. And you'll get my weekly take on what's happening in the world of running, along with a collection of things that I've been thinking about, reading, and listening to that you might enjoy getting in your inbox every Tuesday morning. Okay, that's all I've got. I'm Mario Fraioli, and you've been listening to The Morning Shakeout Podcast. Podcast.